A short story was published called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, written by a man named Raymond Carver. And the basic premise of the, the story is that there are two couples and they're sitting around a table talking about what love is. One, one woman has been abused, but she claims to the table that love is what drove her abuser to his abuse. He tried to kill her. She says it was passion, it was love. He was, he was overwhelmed. Her husband, of course, disagrees. That's, that's not what love is. Love doesn't cause harm like that. Love doesn't lash out. Love doesn't try and kill. But as the story continues, we find out that actually he too is abusive. He's controlling. He's verbally abusive. And the reader has to ask, is it love if it physically abuses? Is it love if it emotionally abuses? Is it love if it verbally abuses? Can any of this be called love? Now, the other couple, they're sitting kind of awkwardly around the table, listening to this whole conversation unfold, mostly trying to keep the peace, keeping quiet. And the reader has to ask about them. Is it love if it allows people to be abused? Is it love if it accommodates a lie? Is it love if it fails to correct? Is it love if it doesn't confront unkindness? And by the end of the story, we're left wondering, what are we talking about when we talk about love? When I say love, am I talking about the same thing that the characters in the story were talking about when they talk about love? Then in 2012, a man named Nathan Englander wrote a short story that followed the same kind of format as what we talk about what we, when we talk about love. He called it what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. And it explored what it means to be Jewish in a post-Holocaust world. Is, is it a part of the Jewish identity to want to preserve the memory of the, the Holocaust? Does keeping the law make a person Jewish? Does selectively keeping the law make a person Jewish? Is it possible for one Jew to be more Jewish than another Jew? The questions he asks in this story. When we talk about Anne Frank, are we talking about her Jewishness? or the fact that she was persecuted, or the tragedy of the Holocaust? Are we talking about a 13-year-old girl's adolescent diary? What are we talking about when we talk about Anne Frank? And so today we're starting this series, what we talk about when we talk about. And we're going to focus on some of the phrases and the words that we commonly use. And maybe we make some surface level assumptions about what those words might mean. But, but perhaps there's more depth below the surface if we spend a little time with them. When we talk about salvation, about being saved, do we always talk about the same thing? What are we saved from? What are we saved to? What does salvation mean? And, and what does salvation accomplish and do? When we talk about forgiveness or, or wrath or eternity, are we talking about the same kinds of things? A word that you'll hear me use a lot is transformation. What are we talking about when we talk about being transformed? What does that mean? In this first week, we're going to, to uh, discuss what we talk about when we talk about love, just like that first short story. Only I think we'll find that as Christians, we define love differently than much of the rest of the world. Uh, Carmen and I, we have a joke Whenever one of us does something nice for the other one, something unexpected and just kind, we break out into song. So like if a person brings, if, if Carmen's getting herself a cup of coffee and she brings me one too, uh, we're going to break out into White Snake. 
Um, do you remember the 80s song? Is this love that I'm feeling? You know that song. Um, I'm not going to sing much more of it because you don't want to hear that. But uh, on the other hand, you know, if Carmen just, well, let's reverse it because that's how it really works. If I get myself coffee and I don't bring it for her, well, we're going to break out into a different song. We'll sing Jay Giles, Love Stinks. <laughs> you know, as a culture, we have uh, a lot of different ways of thinking about what love is. You know, love is something romantic or emotional or wishy-washy, something that we can fall into, and then we can fall back out of, and then we can fall back into again. And my guess is that a lot of us have a sense that God's love is something different than all that. And the kind of love that God calls us to is something different than all that. Which might lead us to ask, what are we talking about when we talk about love? And when the church talks about love, is it the same thing as when the rest of the world talks about love? Now, there are a lot of obvious places that we could point to in Scripture. In a little bit, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, the passage you hear at every wedding you ever go to, love is patient, love is kind. Or John 3, 16, for God so loved. And from these verses, we might, we might discern that love is self-giving. It's outwardly focused. And already at that point, we're, we're working out of a different definition of love than what we find in pop culture on the radio or on television. But I want us to go a little bit deeper this morning. We're going to look at a passage that doesn't even use the, the word love. It isn't a commandment, it's not instructions for how we should love, it never uses that, that word. But in this passage, love is on trial. Love is a, a, a question, what does love look like? And so we're going to look at Matthew 16, Verses 21 through 25 this morning. If you'll turn with me, Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 25. Before we read this passage, I just want to invite you to pray. Father, we remember this morning that it is a privilege to enter into your word and to allow your spirit to speak to us through it, to shape our lives and inform our lives. And so, Father, we pray that as we come before your word this morning, we would make space in our lives for your spirit to work and to speak to us. We give you praise, Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 25. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is on the road to the cross. He is he's on a path that is leading to his crucifixion. Everything in life begins to point to this inevitable moment, the, the execution of Jesus. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for the things that are to come. The disciples love him. 
It's going to be difficult for them. He begins to prepare them in advance. Peter loves him. He, he loves Jesus with a love that is confused and scared by what he hears and maybe even a little bit selfish and emotion-driven, a love that's thinking as much about Peter as about Jesus and what Peter stands to lose, the pain that Peter would like to avoid. Peter says to Jesus, of course this can't happen. Not to you. He, he doesn't say, if this is going to happen, Lord, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I love you through this? How can I walk alongside you? No, he, he says, not you, Lord. That's not how things are supposed to go. He doesn't look for ways to be patient or kind or self-giving. Instead, his love is contaminated by fear, and he tries to control the situation. And what about Jesus? Does Jesus in the moment fail to love when he says, get behind me, Satan? Would love be letting it slide? Would it be loving if, if Peter just went along thinking nothing bad could ever happen to him? That, that the road that they walk together will be an easy one. I think P Jesus is telling Peter, you're not acting as a friend, but as a tempter. He corrects his thinking when he says, you're not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. Peter's love is selfish. It's impure. It's, it's trying to control rather than trying to serve. Not you, Lord. That can't happen to you. When we talk about love, are we talking about something which controls? Or are we talking about something which allows freedom? The Christian tradition in which the Church of the Nazarene is located is, is one that values the doctrine of free will. We believe that God gives us freedom to choose. And a central part of our belief is in a God who is uncontrolling. God does not try and, and dictate or control the decisions we make. He, he gives freedom. He offers free will. And, and it's that uncontrolling nature of God that is an expression of his love for us. But Jesus' love, it corrects, but it does not control. It remains present and it remains steady despite Peter's outburst and proclamation. It isn't wishy-washy. It doesn't go away because Peter has messed up somehow. It isn't squishy. It doesn't give Peter a, a hug and a pat on the back and say, everything will be okay. Jesus' love is patient. Jesus' love is steadfast. It corrects but does not control. I think the real challenge of this passage comes in Jesus' instructions to his disciples. Responding to the situation and Peter's outburst, Jesus says, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. We know that God is love. Christ is love. And when Jesus says, whoever wishes to follow me, that means whoever wants to become like me, they must learn to say no to themselves. Our culture believes that love is something that we can fall into and back out of. Love is a, a feeling or an emotion that compels us. It's about desire and lust and attraction. But Jesus teaches that to love properly, we have to learn to say no to ourselves. It's hard to hear no, isn't it? People get angry when they have to hear the word no. No one likes to hear the word no. Adults, though we, we wouldn't like to admit it about ourselves, often begin to act like children when they hear the word no. Even when, like children, no is in our best interest. 
I don't envy the person who's ever in the position to have to say no to someone. And if we can't hear no from someone else, there's a good chance that we won't be able to say no to ourselves either. We'll have a, a hard time controlling our impulses. Chances are good that, that we'll have a hard time saying no to ourselves if we can't hear it from others. But this is important. This is a, a central, I believe, to this passage that love says no. Before boundaries are crossed, before people are hurt, before violence is enacted, or names are called, love says no, no, I won't go there. No, I won't do those things. No, I won't cause hurt to someone else. In a culture of, of indulgence and just do it and have it your way and instant gratification, self-denial might be the most important spiritual discipline we have to learn to practice. We can't love well if we haven't figured out how to deny ourselves. Our culture hasn't figured out love. It hasn't figured out how to say no to, to ourselves. It's figured out pleasure. It's figured out how to use people. It's figured out how to take pleasure at the expense of others, but it hasn't yet figured out love. And the truth about love is a truth that I think our culture just isn't quite ready to accept. And it's a truth that we can only fully grasp in Christ. You see, the, the truth about love is that it is a beautiful, wonderful, world-healing, gospel-bearing reality, but unlike pleasure, Love is a form of death. I, I want to let that sink in. And, and if there's one single takeaway from today, I hope it's found in those words. Love is a form of death. And I know that that doesn't feel right, does it? Love shouldn't be death. That, that feels all wrong to say out loud, to hear. Be honest, I think it sounds more like a, a bad country western song than the gospel, doesn't it? Like, more like a bad breakup song than something that we discover in Christ. I can just about hear Garth Brooks singing that song and turning down the radio. <laughs> I'm not saying love feels like death. I'm saying that love, learning to love, is in many ways like learning to die. A new parent, when they hold their child for the first time, they just swell with pride. And I can tell you the first time I held Cade, we were at Highland Hospital just a few miles from here. And, and I looked down at him and I could feel a part of myself dying. It was a part of me that could take selfish risks. It was a part of me that could behave in, in selfish ways. It was a part of me that didn't want to be accountable to someone else. Because instead, I was just filled with love for him. And because love made that immediate kind of demand on my life, part of me had to die. There was a part of me that needed to die. There was a part of me that loved myself more than I loved others. Love is a form of death. When the early pleasures of, of marriage wear and those challenges begin, we either see two people learning to die to themselves in order that love may flourish, or we see the death of that marriage. When love between two friends is threatened by selfishness or greed, we either see the death of that selfishness or we see the death of that friendship. And the church, when the church faces the forces of hell and division finds its way into the church community, we either die to ourselves and love one another through our differences or we die to kingdom potential. We die to the ability to be witnesses to Christ 
We die to the ability to worship together. We die to the ability to be discipled and to make disciples. The prophet Micah said, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Love looks like justice and mercy and humility. Justice in Scripture is not retributive. It's not what happens when someone gets what's coming to them. That's, that's karma. That's not love. That's not justice. Justice in Scripture is restorative. It's what happens when people are restored to God and to one another. Justice is always on behalf of the other person and never against them. Justice is what happens when we respond to God's call to love everyone, even those, maybe even especially those, who are most broken. Love in this world looks like taking care of the needs of the widow and the orphan, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and giving of ourselves sacrificially to meet the needs of others. That kind of love is both justice and mercy. It's self-emptying and it's self-giving, and it turns out it's, it's wholly satisfying as well. And what does love look like as it grows in us? First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8 tells us, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and, cannot, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. The emotion of love, now that fails. The emotion of love is fleeting, but Christian love is a commitment to one another that stands the test of disagreements, of conflict, of disappointment, of pain. Christian love withstands these things. The love of Jesus withstood those things. What great love must it have taken to look into the faces of the people who have mocked you? spit on you, beaten you, insulted you, spread lies about you, held the nails against your palms with one hand while they swung the hammer with the other, hoisted you upon a cross, laughed at you while your lungs filled with blood, offered you vinegar when you needed water. What great love does it take to say after all of those things, Father, forgive them. And what forgiveness and compassion is required to believe that they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. That's love. Love is what led Jesus to the cross that we may live. Love is what held him there. It's not a fleeting emotion. It's a commitment to love God and to love one another. Love is a form of death. But love is also the only path to life. 
It's the only way to live in community. It's the only way to be the church. To believe that love is both a form of death and all at once the only path to life may seem like a contradiction. Really, it's merely the result of a resurrection faith. And it can only be truly understood when we, when we know our resurrected king. Love may be a form of death, but failing to love is a surer way to die. That becomes the death of loneliness, of broken relationships, of lives and potential and faith. Jesus asks, what advantage do people have if they gain the whole world for themselves, yet perish or lose their lives? What advantage do we have if the world runs exactly the way we always desired, but we lose what matters most? our friendships, our relationships, community, our faith, ourselves. Love is difficult, but, but growing in love, an act which requires death to ourselves is what it means for us to follow Christ. God is love, Christ is love, and, and we are his image bearers. We are most like Christ when we are most willing to love sacrificially. We're most like Christ when we are most willing to take up our crosses because that is the only way to follow him. But make no mistake, we, we don't merely lug those crosses around. We don't merely carry a cross. There are times when because we have carried a cross, we will hang from it too. There will be times when we experience the pain that is involved in following Jesus. There is a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to love, because although we are learning to, to love those in the world, there is never a guarantee that they will love us back. And when we're willing to bear a cross to follow Jesus, we understand that there are times when people will use it to crucify us. But when that happens, as hard as it may be, we strive to do what Jesus did and love all the more. As you hang from that cross, love all the more. As you hang from that cross, let that rage that was, is within you die. Allow the bitterness that resides within you to die. Allow the self-importance and despair and greed or malice or vengeance or, or unrighteous anger that, was in, that is within you to die on that cross. Whatever resides within you that does not reflect the love of Jesus, let it die. Because as we die to ourselves, we are resurrected in Christ Jesus, whose own death on the cross, though it was painful, though it was torturous, and though it was unfair and unjust, was not the end of the story. Because death gave way to new life, to, to resurrected life. Jesus says that, that those who want to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for his sake will find it. I believe that we gather here on Sunday mornings because we desire to find our lives in Christ. We love Jesus and we want to love him more, to look more like him, but, but love is a form of death. And so I ask you, what needs to die in your life today in order that you might be more fully alive in Christ? What habits or practices, what attitudes or traits, what desires need to die in order that I would live as Christ lives in me?
what do I need to surrender today? What, what do you need to surrender today? What attitude or what desire? How is God calling you to die today in order that you might be most fully alive in him? What needs to die in order for you to be able to love God and others more fully? Because when we talk about love, we're not talking about emotion. Emotion fades. We're talking about steadfast commitment. We're talking about giving our whole selves, our lives toward the God who we love. We're talking about working with God to love those most affected by the world's brokenness and seeking out restorative justice for those who have been trampled by society. We're talking about a love that is self-emptying and self-giving, which by some great mystery only grows as it gives itself away. Don't you wish your mortgage or your rent payment worked that way? Love only grows as it gives itself away. The economy of the kingdom of God. When we talk about love, we're talking about Christ in the world, in us. We're talking about Christ in the world through us. And if the world knew the love that we talk about, when we talk about love, the world would know Christ. Lord, how do we need to die today in order that the world would know you more? Will you pray with me? Father, it is such a privilege to know you. And it is such a privilege to be known by you. Father, we find ourselves this morning a people who are called to live according to the love that you have for us. We find ourselves this morning a people who are invited to know that love and to be reflections of that love in the world. But we remember, Lord, that love requires sacrifice. Love requires that we die to ourselves, trusting in our resurrected Christ to bring about new life, new possibility, new futures. And so, Father, if there are things this morning that you are calling to our mind that we need to let go of, a disposition toward another person, an attitude about a circumstance or event, a judgmental attitude, broken approach to the people around us. If, Lord, if there is something in our lives that prevents us from loving like you love us, we place that at your feet, Lord. And we pray that you would fill us with a new kind of love for others. Love that's willing to sacrifice for those who would never sacrifice for us. A love that's willing to empty ourselves out for those who are only willing to take. Fill us with a kind of love, Lord, that, that does not expect return, but it is poured out all the same. Because we know that it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. 
Our faith is a resurrection faith. Stir in us something new, we pray. this morning, Father. We pray all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, who died and was raised again. Amen. Forever to the one who 
sing your praises this morning. You are a God who loves us. You love us just as you find us. And you love us with a love that is not content to leave us in our brokenness, but restores us to you. Restores us to the image in which we were created. The image of God, the image of love. We pray this morning, Father, that as we prepare to depart from this space, we would be sent as ambassadors of your love. Use us, Lord, in the broken corners of this world to bring about restoration and to point the world to you. Use us, Lord, as, as image bearers, as, as ambassadors to the ways of your kingdom, to the God who loves and brings about in us love. Send us, we pray, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name.